Uh, I wonder what um, sorts of words you'd use to describe gospel ministry. So it's Thursday evening and you're leading the fellowship group study. You've prepared, and not easy in a busy week. You've been sent some pretty ropey material to work with. Uh, But it's about Jesus and you've got a plan. And the study happens and it goes as it usually does. People chat, talk about the passage and share life, some more than others. So she's on her hobby horse again. He's, is he drifting off to sleep? You pray together and that's it for another week. No fireworks, nothing dramatic. And you leave feeling what? What sorts of words might you use? Or it's Friday night. It's uh, it's time for youth group, and you are one of the youth. You're in Rooted, the older group, and it's time for the Bible bit. And one of the youth leaders is giving a talk on uh, one of Jesus' I am sayings in John's gospel. The talk's okay. The, uh, the leader clearly believes what they're saying. And as you go home and you think about the evening, I wonder what sorts of words come into your mind. Well, it's any weeknight, and it's time for family devotions. It's another chapter from the Jesus Storybook Bible, and the, the children listen well enough. They're used to the routine by now, and, and they know that if in doubt, the answer is always Jesus. And you pray, and uh, maybe they pray too. Same again tomorrow. <clears throat> what sort of word comes to mind as you think about it? All right, one more. It's Monday morning. A colleague at work asks you what you did over the weekend. I went to church. Oh, How was that? What was that like? Well, how was it? What sort of word would you use? Uh, What about a word like ordinary? An ordinary rock-solid class, an ordinary fellowship group Bible study, an ordinary youth talk or church service, nothing special, no fireworks, same old stuff. Ordinary, maybe dare we say it, a little bit boring compared to the parties my friends are at, compared to the gig or the match I went to last week, bit dull. To be honest, I go because my parents make me go. Ordinary, unimpressive, nothing special. This is a bit of a stretch, but would you imagine with me that sitting in that rock-solid class or that Bible study or that youth talk or that church service was the Apostle Paul himself, a very ordinary-looking man, the sort you'd not look at twice if you saw him in the street. You go up to him afterwards, and you ask him what he thought. You know what word he might use as his face broke out in a huge grin? That, he would say, was glorious. Of course, to his critics, Paul was worse than ordinary. He was something of an embarrassment. In a city where outward appearance was everything and celebrity preachers were gathering great crowds, who wanted to team up with uh, such a weak man, with such a weak message? Uh, A message of a crucified Jew preached by a battered apostle wasn't going to cut it in Corinth. Uh, Talking of Jews, and there were lots of them in Corinth after the emperor had booted them out of Rome, they knew glory when they saw it. Uh, they had all the best glory stories. The, the old covenant part of the Bible is full of glory. Uh, pillars of fire and cloud in the desert, Mount Sinai trembling like a, a bowl of jelly as the awesome glory of the Lord descends. Uh, the glory of God, we read it about it earlier, didn't we? Glowing on Moses' face as he came down the mountain, as he came out of the tent of meeting. 
Paul's ministry had no cloud or fire, and his face didn't glow. All he had was the gospel. A weak-sounding message through a weak-sounding man. Where's the glory in that? And so here in chapter 3, verses 7 to 18, Paul draws back the veil on his weak-sounding ministry, and he shows them and us glory. First, verses 7 to 11, a glorious ministry. A glorious ministry. Why is it that Paul chooses to talk about old covenant ministry here in chapter 3? Uh, Some people think it was because the so-called super-apostles were practicing a very Jewish, very old covenant ministry themselves, maybe. But then we use these sorts of comparisons in a similar way today. Uh, For example, the, the new kid on the tennis block at the moment is a young Spaniard called Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, he won Wimbledon, it's that guy. Uh, and some say uh, that he's, um, he's a kind of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal rolled into one player. But that's how we show how good we think something or someone is. We compare them or it with something else, don't we? They're like that, great thing, only better. Paul here takes something his readers would think of as glorious to show that his ministry is better. More glorious, he says, verse 7, than the ministry of death. Uh, It's an unusual description of the Old Covenant, but it makes sense when you read through the book of Exodus. Uh, Remember the context. Moses climbs Mount Sinai to receive the law and the covenant from God, this new agreement between God and his people. And while God is spelling out what it's going to look like to live as his privileged people, those same privileged people are building a golden calf and worshiping it as their God. God's judgment falls and 3,000 people die. There is death all over the Old Covenant. If the people had had hearts obedient to God, it could have been a ministry of life, but the people's hearts were hard. They were stubborn and selfish and sinful, and the Old Covenant, great though it was, lacked the power to do anything about it. It was a ministry of death, and verse 9, a ministry of condemnation. It held up a mirror to their hearts and declared them guilty. And that covenant, that ministry, says Paul, was glorious. It was an extraordinary privilege to be an old covenant member of the people of God. Glorious not only in the the glorious miracles, but in every glorious revelation of God's character. The, The Ten Commandments, for example, are a glorious expression of God's glorious being, aren't they? His faithfulness, His truthfulness, power, beauty, kindness, purity. The Jewish people rightly considered themselves to be the most privileged people on the planet, because to them had been given the most glorious revelation of the glorious glory of God in the whole of human history. And here's Paul's point. If the old covenant, which could only in the end deliver death and condemnation, came with glory, how much more glorious must the new covenant be? Which brings not death, but what? Verse 8. The Spirit... We're expecting him to compare death with life, aren't we? Well, he does, but how? By the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? Verse 6, the Spirit who gives life. Not death, but the life-giving Spirit at work in the new covenant. When a person turns to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit of God comes into their dead heart and he raises them to life. 
But the same Spirit who, who gave life to creation at the beginning makes that person a new creation, a whole new person with a whole new living relationship with God. And the life the Spirit gives to that person is a life that never ends. It is life everlasting. And even physical death won't bring it to an end. And this weak-sounding gospel message raises the dead to life. How glorious is that? But it does more, verse 9. If there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, the old covenant could hold up a mirror to my sin. It could show me the kind of person I was supposed to be and how far short I fall and what I deserve from God as a result. And that on its own was it. If that covenant was glorious, how glorious is a covenant that pays for my sin? A Savior who dies on the cross to save me from my sin. A covenant that says to me, there is now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. If you've believed in this weak gospel, all of your guilt and shame is gone. God has removed your condemnation and clothed you in the glorious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You stand today by faith in the gospel, flawless in his sight. Isn't that glorious? The new covenant is so glorious, so overflowing with the glorious grace of God to sinners that it makes the old covenant look dull by comparison. Have a look, verse 10. Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory of that surpasses it. You think of your bedside lamp. Have you got one of those? Uh, you put it on as you go, get into bed. Maybe you switch it back on when you wake up, particularly as the sun gets up later and later through the winter months. Uh, the lamp glows. It has a certain glory about it. And in the dark, it seems bright to you. But when the sun comes up, the lamp loses all of its brightness by comparison. Uh, the old co- covenant is a is a single lamp, a, a single candle. The, the grace of God in the new covenant is the rising sun, blazing, dazzling with the glory of God. I wonder, is that how you think about gospel ministry? If that was always obvious to us, Paul wouldn't have to write this at all, would he? It would be clear, you know, if your, if your youth leader's face actually glowed with heavenly glory whenever they gave a talk, you'd probably realize that you were hearing something special, something glorious. You would listen, wouldn't you? And the point here is this. The old covenant looked glorious. It did have its own glory, trembling mountains and glowing faces, but the new covenant, that's where the glory is. Your rock-solid lessons, your Thursday evening Bible studies, that one-to-one that you're persevering with, your very ordinary feeling family devotions, that is glorious. Paul says it's glorious. The glorious God who made the world and everything in it says that your gospel ministry is glorious. You know, sitting in room 104, telling children there about Jesus 
is more glorious than if you sat with the same children at the foot of Mount Sinai and pointed them to the trembling mountain and the glory of the Lord descending. The gospel is a fuller revelation of the glory of God, a more wonderful delivery of the grace of God, a more dazzling display of the saving power of God than anything Moses knew and experienced himself. For that matter, anything the world today can offer. You can keep your Taylor Swift concert or your Champions League fixtures or the Oscars or the iPhone 15 Pro Max. You want glory. It's in the gospel. And when this glory gets to work in sinful people, they are transformed. Secondly, 3, 12 to 18, a transformational ministry a transformational ministry. As we've seen, there was great glory in the old covenant, the glory of the supernatural, the glory of God's revelation in the law. But between the glory of God and the people of God hung a veil. Uh, We heard about it earlier from Exodus 34. Whenever Moses went into the tent of meeting to meet with God as he alone did, he would meet him without a face covering. But when he came back out of the tent, he would cover his face, most likely to protect the people. Since the old covenant couldn't deliver the righteousness the people needed, they needed to be protected from the glory of the Lord, the way we might protect a child from an open fire with a guardrail, a fire cover. It's beautiful, it's warming, it's dazzling, but get you close and it's lethal. Moses' face shone with the glory of the Lord, but a veil covered it from the people. We don't use veils very much, I suppose. Maybe at a wedding. Certain weddings might still use them. The the bride spends hours, so I'm told, being beautified. The bridesmaids are up at 5 a.m. to have their hair done, and the bride gets gets her makeup done by professionals, and she looks the best she's ever looked in her life. And, and, And down the aisle, she wears, traditionally anyway, a veil to cover her face. She's stunning. But until the veil is removed, no one can see it. Well, that, says Paul, is both how it was in Moses' day, a veil covered the glory of the Lord from the eyes of the people, and how it is still today in Paul's day when Moses was being read. Paul's habit was always, wasn't it, to start in the synagogue. Wherever he went, he would find the synagogue, the local gathering of Jewish uh, Jewish people, and meet with them first. His heart was first for the Jews. And there in the synagogue, he would hear the old covenant being read. Moses was being read. And in his mind's eye, he could look around the room at these very devout-seeming Jewish people, hearing Moses being read, nodding along. And it's as though Paul could see a veil covering the glory of God from them. They can't see it as Moses is being read. Where is this veil that Paul talks, mentions here, describes? It? Well, in verse 14, have a look. It sounds as though the veil is draped over the whole of the Old Covenant, just as it was uh, covering Moses' face. But in verse 15, where is it? A veil lies over their hearts. In other words, says Paul, the reason they don't really understand the true meaning of the Old Covenant, the reason that so many Jews have been chasing me around Europe trying to stop me talking about Jesus, the reason the Old Covenant can't do for them What they need it to do is because their hearts are hard. 
Uh, last week we saw, didn't we, the, the, the differing effects that the gospel has on people. To one, a beautiful fragrance. To another, a terrible stench. Why does it have such different effects? The heart. A natural man in his uh, natural state has a hard heart, unreceptive, unresponsive to the truth. But here's where Paul's gospel ministry is so glorious. Verse 14, only through Christ is it taken away. Or verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When a person turns to Christ in faith, when the Spirit of God enters their heart and opens their eyes, they see for the first time the dazzling glory and beauty of God in the face of Christ. Like the veil being drawn back and the bridegroom seeing his bride's wedding day face for the first time. Nothing is so beautiful to the born-again person than the unveiled glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the implication, of course, for many of Paul's contemporaries was that if they couldn't see the glory of God in his message, the problem wasn't with his message. It was with them. The same is true today. If you hear the gospel message and you see no glory or beauty in it, if you find it ordinary, dull, the problem isn't with the gospel. The problem's with you. You need God to do for you what Paul describes here. You'll never see that beauty as you should until the veil is removed. There's a lovely example of this in uh, Luke 24. Do you remember this? Uh, Jesus has died and uh, risen again, and he's now in the period between his resurrection and his ascension. And there are two disciples in Luke 24 walking along a road, uh, commiserating with each other about the, tragic, the terrible tragic events over the past few days. Now, this Jesus in whom so many people had put their hope has been crucified. How terrible, how sad. And Jesus comes up alongside them, and of course, they've got no idea who he is. They haven't got categories for a resurrected Jesus. And so, th this kind of hilarious conversation ensues with them uh, discussing with Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, their sadness about the Jesus who's dead and buried in the tomb. They go along the road. They go and eat together. Jesus takes bread blesses it, breaks it, gives it to them, and we read, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Two things happen in that moment. They see two things clearly that they hadn't seen before. Firstly, they see the old covenant clearly. They're able to go all the way back through the scriptures and realize it was always about him. Everything we heard in the synagogue, every lesson we heard, every institution in which we put our trust was about him. Everything, a sign and shadow of the glory of Christ. It was all about him all along. They see the old covenant clearly, and they see him clearly. They see in Jesus the glory of God, the veil drawn back, and the beauty of God revealed. This is what happens when a person becomes a Christian the veil is removed. And they're blown away by the beauty of Christ, the beauty of righteousness, God declaring them to be right with God on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross, the beauty of everlasting life, God raising sinners from spiritual death to indestructible resurrection life. They see the beauty of the glory of God. And that first glimpse of His glory 
then becomes a lifelong gaze. I think of that bridegroom. His beloved has had her veil removed, and he sees her in all her beauty. What does he do? One glimpse, a shrug, and a turning away? No, of course not. The Christian life is a lifelong gaze at the beauty and glory of God in Christ. As we see His glory here in the Scriptures, we, we talk about Him in our fellowship groups, our one-to-ones. We, we, we show Him, we put Him on display in our rock-solid class, our youth group, as we try to share Him with people at work or on our street, as we behold Him together in His Word every Sunday. As we behold Him, look what happens, verse 18, have a look. We all, with unveiled face, that is, like Moses in the Old Testament, We all with unveiled face, as though we stand in the tent of meeting like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see the point? The glory of gospel ministry isn't only in the glory that I see in it, but the glory that I become through it. Now, that word transformed is the metamorphosis word, the the caterpillar that crawls into a cocoon and comes out a beautiful butterfly, transformed from one kind of glory, one degree of glory to another. As we behold Christ in the gospel, we change. Now, of course, this doesn't uh, work quite the same way in other parts of our lives. If I'm going bald, gazing at someone with a full head of hair doesn't give me a full head of hair. It'd be nice if it worked that way, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. If a person could lose weight just by gazing at someone much slimmer than them, all the the gyms and the diet companies would go out of business. But it does work that way with the Lord Jesus. We become what we behold. As I gaze at His glory, as I fill my mind and my heart with the truth of the Lord Jesus, as His gospel and His Spirit gets to work in me, so I become more and more like Him. This is the Christian life. A gradual daily transformation from one degree of glory to another. As I fix my heart and my mind on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that transformation will be complete when I see Him face to face. So the Apostle John describes it in 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We'll become what we behold. We'll be changed from one degree of glory into another. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, just as we're like him, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This is what the gospel does. What could possibly be more glorious than that? When we see the the glory of the gospel, the, the transformational power of the gospel, what does it do to us? Well, it does to us the same thing it did to the Apostle Paul. Have a look in verse 12. Have a look down with me. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Glorious transformational gospel ministry is a reason to be very, very bold. 
You know, with your ordinary seeming ministry, your ordinary Bible studies, ordinary family devotions, stuttering gospel conversations as you speak to Christ to others, there's nothing ordinary about that. This simple, weak gospel ministry, more glorious than anything Moses saw or heard, is changing boys and girls and men and women from one degree of glory to another all over the world. The clearest display of the unveiled beauty of the Lord, righteousness in place of condemnation, life in place of death, the power of the Spirit to transform a person from glory to everlasting glory. Don't call it ordinary. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be embarrassed about it. See the glory of gospel ministry and be bold. Let's pray.